0: Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Shiv. I'm Skip, and today we are thrilled to have Jason Stanley
1: here with us. Professor Stanley is the Jacob Urwiski Professor of Philosophy at Yale University. Before coming to Yale in 2013, he was Distinguished Professor in the Department of Philosophy at Rutgers University. Professor Stanley has two forthcoming books, How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them, and also The Politics of Language. He also has four previously published books, including How Propaganda Works, which was the winner of the 2016 Prose Award for the subject area of philosophy.
0: Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Stanley.
2: Thank you, Shiv and Skip. I'm great, glad to be here.
0: So to get started, we like to ask our guests to talk about an inflection point, a place where they had to pivot or adjust in their career or personal life. Can you share a moment or two with us?
2: Yes. So for the first, uh, I would say, um, well, 20 years of my profession, career as a philosopher, I was focused on uh, highly abstract issues, philosophical logic, philosophy of language, like basically the left parentheses. I love the left parentheses and have written many articles about it. Uh, but in around 20, 2010, 2011, I began to recognize that there was a kind of shift happening in the public polit- political arena. And I guess it hit me most with birtherism, which was the uh, conspiracy theory about President Obama that he was born in Kenya, and uh, and wasn't couldn't be president, or that he was a secret Muslim and all of that. And my parents are Holocaust survivors, and so they're refugees, refugees from European anti-Semitism. Um, and uh, my father lived through the Kristallnacht, and my mother lived through the war, actually. But uh, but so I grew up with an understanding of when. Things go drastically wrong, and uh, one time things go drastically wrong is when the public political arena is dominated by conspiracy theories, uh, like the protocols of the Elders of Zion under Hitler, under the Nazis, and there's a kind of structure to them. The structure is uh, the you know the protocols the jews control the newspaper the newspapers and you know that because the newspapers aren't reporting on the jews controlling the newspapers and birtherism took a similar form cnn is run by obama because cnn is not reporting that cnn uh, you know that obama was born in kenya and so there's a kind of trap there so i started seeing similar structures i started getting worried about fox news and it it sort of really brought me to think that i needed to use my skills to think about what was happening.
1: So a lot of your work seems to be centered in history, and it's fascinating because um, when you were at MIT, you were studying linguistics and philosophy. How do you, where do you see the intersection of of those three kind of disciplines? A lot of times, people don't really think of those as being kind of uh, together.
2: Oh, that's right. I, and I've been in the cognitive science departments. Uh, I'm uh, my my propaganda course at Yale is is co-listed in philosophy, African American studies. Uh, cognitive science, ethics uh, EP ethics, politics and economics, uh, and education studies. So so I think the real question is what accounts for uh, the interdisciplinarity, although that is a sort of shady word at this point and discredited word. but the fact that I, I don't really pay attention to disciplines, I think it's because of this. God did not create the world to reflect the disciplines in the in the 21st century university. The world's problems are not labeled with like subscripts, please send to the philosophy department, please send to the economics department, please send to the history department. It would be great if they were. It would be a lot easier and majors would make more sense. But as I as you grow older, well, I won't condescend to you because I was pretty smart when I was your age too, but uh I became to real. I came to realize that it's entirely accidental the structure of the university, and the problems don't fit the structure of the university. And if anything, the structure of the university is a way of distracting us from the problems. And so, if you want to understand why people are, say, drawn to fascism, you need to you need to draw on history. You need to draw on social psychology. You need to think about language. You need everything.
0: Now, this is probably probably a pretty complicated answer, but can you tell us, in short, why are people drawn to fascism?
2: Uh, people are drawn to fascism, and people have always been drawn to fascism. I mean, there. Are, okay, there's a complicated answer because a lot of the history of political philosophy deals with this. Plato in Book 8 of the Republic, uh, the Republic is a response to Thrasymachus, who argues that all is power, that virtue is a weakness. And all is power. In other words, it's all about winning. And uh, and losers get no value. And Plato's trying to respond to that. And in Book 8, where Plato critiques democracy and says why democracy will fail and leads immediately to tyranny, he addresses your question. Why are people drawn to despots? Why are people drawn to, to, to like people who present themselves as strong leaders and whip up fear and present themselves as the protector? And he says, uh, you know, uh, people, he basically says democracy is hard you know uh, self-rule is hard people want a strong leader to come in and take care of the problems uh, they're easily made to panic they're easily made made to feel disgust about foreign uh, foreigners um uh, these are elements that political philosophers have been talking about since Plato why people why democracy is so difficult why it's so why we're so tempted to, be drawn to someone who presents themselves as a big macho leader who will do it all for us. Uh, you know, democracy is hard. So, from
1: a personal standpoint, you you mentioned, but you are the child of two Holocaust survivors. To what degree does that kind of inform your uh, awareness and, and and vary your concern with what's going on today and and all of your research that you've been doing?
2: Uh, it's uh, it's kind of unimaginable. Uh, I mean. I feel that my background as it were calls me to this because I grew up with parents explaining the structure of what uh, the structure of things like the panic about immigrants and refugees the the panic about the macho politics the representation of uh, the law and order campaigns all fascist campaigns are law and order campaigns big strong persons gonna come and make sure that you know you're safe and that the 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 other guy is not going to rape your wife and 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 your children so these are things that that i grew up with because my parents grew up like what what when the trump campaign started running it reminded me of the of the stories my father would tell me about berlin when he was growing up when he learned to read by reading by the signs that talked about how horrible he was, Jews. You know, he was like, wow, that says I'm a rat. And then I thought, and it just reminded me of what Muslim six-year-olds must be going. What is a Muslim six-year-old child thinking in the United States? What was a Muslim six-year-old child thinking? That experience, if you're Muslim in the United States, you're gonna hand down the trauma that's happening to your children. I know because I grew up with parents who experienced that who lived in a country that vilif- where the political campaigns were vilifying them. And so, you know, so I know, I know, you know, uh, what that is. I've inherited that trauma. Uh, and so, so it was very, very affecting to me uh, to put myself in, in you know, w- when you take a religious group like Muslims in the United States right now, um, like Mexican immigrants, when, when, The trauma that children are going through. Uh, So I grew up with that, with being raised by parents who were subjected to that trauma. And so I'm going to do what I can to warn people that you should not treat people like that.
0: (laughs) So since, I mean, around 2008 with the whole birtherism and your concern about conspiracy theories, has your concern about all these Patterns that are happening, conspiracy theories like the semblance of fascism, has that you has your concern diminished or has it been magnified since?
2: Magnified tremendously, because it's almost a joke at this point. <laughs> it's so explicit. I mean, globalists—that's just another synonym for in the word in the '30s was internationalists in mm-hmm. the United States of so the Nazi sympathizers, and internationalists meant Jew, of course. Now it's more complicated now, as I'll discuss in my lecture, because Israel makes it the case that nobody immediately thinks internationalist Jew. But until this founding of the state of Israel, that's just what internationalist meant. That's what globalist meant. It meant Jewish person, someone with no home. (laughs) Now, Israel, of course, breaks that because Israel was intended to break that to say, okay, now Jews are not the globalists. (laughs) Uh, But it still means Jew. It just doesn't mean Israeli Jew. So Uh, So and as an as a proud patriotic American, I'm a patriotic American. And so my country is not a Christian country. It's not a Jewish country. It's not a Muslim country. It's an American country. And it's for everyone. And so and it's for me. And when they talk about internationalists and globalists, I know, you know, so that's just to say, we're getting more and more into this vocabulary. I don't. Think our institutions have been co-opted. I think there's plenty of robust dissent and debate. And and uh, but uh, but you know how long are people going to play with the rhetoric and play with these political tactics? I mean, surely you know when you call Mexicans rapists long enough, and you and you raise this panic about immigrants, surely something bad things are going to happen and the family separations.
1: So you mentioned the importance of words and word choice, and that's something you've done extensive research on, and now you're working on your new book. Can you talk to us a little bit about that new project you're you're kind of undertaking right now and, and the intersections you found between that and all the work you've done on fascism?
2: Yeah, good. So I'm trying to... Uh, so Rima Basu is actually the professor in the philosophy department here, who who uh, Claremont McKenna is very fortunate to have. Uh, uh, she, uh, as our... Within, you have a great philosophy department here. Uh, but she's teaching, actually this week, Lynn Terrell's great paper, Genocidal Language Games, which is about the Rwandan genocide, What, uh, which is a paper that deeply informs my own work and my new book with David Bieber on political language. What we're trying to do is we're trying to take all re- lots of resources from linguistics, from sociolinguistics, from history. I mean, really, you have to start anew. To do this, uh, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of work in feminism has been on this. Feminists have have looked at the way that language can harm, and critical race theorists. But language is language prepares the ground for bad things. I mean, here's an American example. Think of super predator theory in the 1990s. Violent crime in the United States started dropping in 1991, and it dropped precipitously from 1991 to. 2013, 2014, when it started going up a little, but not much. And uh, so, in in New York City, there were like 2,300 murders in 1991, and a couple of years ago there were 300. So we're talking about <laughs> drastic reductions in violent crime in the United States. Uh, but through throughout the 1990s, you had this panic of uh, th- that, and an example was Super Predator Theory. John Diulio, Diulio, William Bennett, John Diulio wrote this book, Body Count, in 1996. Uh, arguing that crime was going to, violent crime would quintuple by the year 2000 because there were going to be super predators. Young men were growing up as super predators. And John Diulio says about half of them are young black men, making it clear. Now, this prediction was, needless to say, wildly off. But just the language led over 40 states to adopt a, policies charging juveniles as adults as a result of this ridiculous, completely unscientific theory. And, you know, and those laws are still on the books, and they're, it's very hard to deescalate something like that. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to see how the fearsome language leads to people to be okay with horrible acts. How is it, we know from history that when you start calling people cockroaches and snakes and rapists and murders, then people are fine, begin to be fine with you doing stuff to them. So what we're looking at is how that process happens, trying to use all the resources at our disposal.
0: Beyond de-escalating policy changes that arise out of this kind of use of language, how do like everyday citizens like us push back against that kind of use of language is just by speaking out ourselves or is there something else?
2: Well, it's very tricky because ideology, I mean, one thing we know, like uh, Victor Klemperer's book, The Language of the Third Reich, talks about how Nazi ideology like, forms itself in the language. Like my mother once, I was talking to her on the phone and I said something, I forgot what, and she yelled at me. She's like, don't say that. And I'm like, why? And she's like, "You're that's the way that Trump talks. Don't talk like he talks. <laughs> so her and you know my mother's not a democrat or republican if anything she's a republican uh but uh you know it's just the attention to language that you know when you start to talk to fall into the speech patterns of uh of people who want uh people who you know quote let's just call them strong quote strong leaders unquote <laughs> don't do that uh because you need to think for yourself so uh when you start to to associate groups with criminality, don't do that. You know, like, uh, don't do the thing where you generalize uh, about, um, you know, we, we know, uh, like, um, there's a phenomenon that when you talk, when members of an out group, like, don't call people criminals, say they did this bad thing. <laughs> like, that's pay attention to how you talk.
1: So we've seen a rising wave of nationalism both in the United States and Europe, all around the world. All around the world. India. Um, India, absolutely. And um, I'm wondering about, with given your recent work on fascism, where where are the links? Do you see any links between rising nationalism and fascism? And what what are those links? And is it just too facile to say nationalism and fascism are hand in hand?
2: Nationalism and fascism are hand in hand. <laughs> That's not facile. That's a, just a fact. Uh, I mean, Mein Kampf. It is not to say that all nationalism is fascism. It's not the case that all nationalism is fascism. And as I say in my book, "How Fascism Works," in um, I talk. There's 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 healthy nationalism and there's dangerous nationalism. All anti-colonial. Tucker Carlson made this point the other day, and he's right. All anti-colonial movements are not cloak themselves as nationalist movements. So. But if you think about it, what an anti-colonial movement like Gandhi's movement or uh, the Mau Mau rebels in Kenya were doing is they weren't seeking domination. They were seeking equality. They were fighting against colonizers who were dominating them, and their nationalism took the form of saying we should have equality. So nationalism, the vocabulary of nationalism used to say don't extinguish us (laughs) is fine but when you're the dominant group like take the hindutva movement in in india when you're the dominant group when you're the hindus in india and you're you have a a, a nationalist movement saying muslim muslim indian citizens are foreigners and you're the dominant group then that is the core of fascism that's do- cuz fascism is about power and domination and fear of the other and so Nationalism, when it's done by the dominant group, when it's nationalism, when it's like we we have to not be taken over by the minor- minority, we're the victims of equality, that is the core of fascism. Um, nationalism, when you're just trying to preserve your identity in the face of somebody who's dominating you, that's acceptable because the aim is equality.
0: Switching gears just a little bit, you've spoken— about pillars of nationalism, and one of them was anti-intellectualism. Pillars of fascism. I mean, yeah. And then one of them, yeah, sorry. And then one of them was anti-intellectualism. That's obviously on a rise today. How do we kind of push back against that? It um, seems so attractive to so many people.
2: Yes, Hitler says, uh, you know, he lauds propaganda that appeals to the to the least to the least educated, uh, and. Uh, and as uh, the president said, you know, I love the I love the less, the, the the uneducated, the poorly educated. Um, so uh, so yeah. Um, under these moments, and I'll talk about this in my lecture, the universities are under attack. In all, all fa- in fascist movements, attack the universities as bastions of Marxism and liberalism and feminism. Um, Central European University, the best university in Hungary, closed its doors this week. Um, and is moving out of Hungary. So, uh so uh Hungary last week made it illegal to teach gender studies. So, you have these attacks on the universities. You have universities represented as, as bastions of liberalism and leftism and marxism and feminism and you have these demands that the universities be more nationalist and have more right-wing figures who uh who represent the real nation and uh and you know so so you have to protect you have to protect the uh, you have to protect uh, you have to protect you know these targets you have to protect feminism, you have to protect and that's not to say that you know uh, leftists are always right or gender studies is always right they're not they do accesses everybody does accesses but in moments where where what what fascism does is it says, there's only one perspective, the dominant perspective. It's only the perspective, the perspective that should be taught are the glories of the nation, and and then they represent people who represent other perspectives, like uh, like uh, uh, perspectives of the Roma in Europe or something. That they say they say uh, those are attacks on the nation. So you have to, um, and I think ultimately you have to protect truth because the fact is. Truth, the facts of history are that we all go through history together, and so history has many stories at once. Women go through history, men go through history, black people go through history, Muslims go through history, Christians go through history, and they each have a different perspective because different things happen to them. And so you need each represented. So if you protect truth, you're going to be good.
1: So unfortunately, we only have time for one more question, but it's a question we ask all of our guests. And the question is, what is your personal definition of success and what advice would you give to students in defining success for themselves?
2: So um, I don't think success has any content (laughs) because it's a relational word. It means success at doing something. And you can be successful at counting blades of grass. You can be successful at scratching your ear. So I just don't think the word success means anything because what has all the meaning is the thing it's related to, namely what you're successful at. And that just has all the content is the thing it's related to. And the word success itself is meaningless. Very philosophical.
0: Very. Um, Unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. Thank you again, Professor Stanley, for joining us. And to all of our listeners, remember to stay hungry.
2: Thank you, Shiv. Thank you, Skip.